they're trailblazers. They're prominent. And like all of us, they all have a story to tell. They are real South Africans on Face to Face with Success. Brought to you by Nashua. Saving you time, saving you money, putting you first. My name is Nikki Webigita, co-founder and CEO of Amagi Media. We dreamt up the podcast series Face to Face with Success with the firm belief that the stories and lived experiences of leaders and others can be a truly evocative, powerful tool for inspiration and learning. And we thought that even in the face of the enormous challenges that our country faces, be they persistent inequality, racism, corruption, there are truly amazing, dynamic South Africans who are doing truly spectacular work. And we need to hear those stories so that we can learn from them and be inspired by those stories. So that's what Face to Face with Success is all about. And we are now in our fifth season, just completed our fifth season, and two years on, going strong. Clearly, uh, there seems to be an appetite for this kind of storytelling in South Africa. We want to hear our own stories of success and achievement, but most importantly, so that it can inform our own journeys. What are the experiences that these leaders have had, whether good or bad, that can inform our own journeys that we can learn from? So that is what face-to-face has been about. And I tell you, it's been absolutely amazing. The number of incredible South African leaders that I've interacted with over the past two years and what I've learned from my own personal experiences and the, the stories that people are telling us about how their example has resonated with them and led them to bring about a change in their own lives, regardless of whatever career they're in. One of the other things which was important for us in Face to Face with Success was to choose people from a diverse group of sectors, from whichever industry. So that because we can all learn from, say, scientists or from business people, academics, artists, and that is what has been so enriching, is that we give the full and rich and full experience of leadership across the South African um, landscape, as it were. Let me give you a sample now of what uh, face-to-face has been like. Let's take a listen, Gary. The best time to start a company is immediately because every year is harder than the year before. So if you ever want to start a company as soon as possible, is always the best answer. I remember the next morning, like just not being able to get out of bed because I was literally staring at a failure in the eyes and knowing that like you failed before you even started uh, was a lot. The tragedy in education is that there is a classical mindset of what a school needs to look like. We are able to really be true to ourselves. We don't pretend to be anyone we, we're not anymore. We don't have any airs and graces. We be who we are, we dress who we are. We, it doesn't matter who we meet. We don't pretend anymore. It's all real. For me, success means arriving at a point at which you understand that your duty is to give of yourself and to make sure that you give away more than you ever receive. It's always about whether you can feel whole, whether you can maintain your integrity, your sense of values. I really think having more black people in corporate South Africa would be beneficial for not only just the subject itself, but I think the country at large. The key is not to be like me. The key is to be like you. And the more like you you are, the more differentiated you will be. And therefore, the easier for you to succeed. Visit thesolutionslab.co.za to listen to more real South African success stories on face-to-face with
with success. Brought to you by Nashua. Saving you time, saving you money, putting you first. So those are just some of the stories that we've had the pleasure of bringing you over the past two years in partnership with 702 and Nashua's Solutions Lab. And we, as you can hear from that sample, we deliberately chose people, some of whom were extremely well-known and others not so well-known because we believe that excellence resides sometimes even in the most quietest of corners. And that's what's been so illuminating as well about face-to-face with success. So today, though, we bring you some of those people live. And you too will have a chance to put some questions to them as you hear a bit more about their journeys, how it is that they got to where they are, what you could also possibly learn from their experiences. So I am delighted now to introduce two guests today who have been formerly part of Face to Face with Success podcast. And you'll agree with me as you hear them that they are indeed extraordinary leaders who have achieved enormous success and continue to do so in their lives. Let me now introduce them. My first guest uh, this evening is Professor Kheti Satadi, who's Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research and Internationalization at UCT. Now, Professor Pakeng is a preeminent educator and maths education researcher. She's acknowledged both locally and internationally for contributions uh, to her field. Throughout her career, she has focused on the development of maths education in primary and high school, as well as on teaching and learning maths in multilingual mathematics classrooms. Now, in April last year, she was given the honor uh, by the president of South Africa, the Order of the Baobab in Silver, for her excellent contribution in the field of mathematics education and for generally just being an outstanding scientist and <laughs> making a huge contribution in South Africa. Please give Katie Paking a warm round of applause. Thank you. Uh, my second guest is Ian Fur. Now, Ian, I tell you, is an entrepreneur extraordinaire. Ian is the founder of the beauty group Sorbet, which was established in 2005. He describes himself as a serial entrepreneur. And if you look at his track record in business, and if, when you hear his story, there isn't a sector that he hasn't dabbled in. I mean, from retail, wholesale, distribution, music, and the big beauty chain he has built over the past 12 years, which has also recently now expanded abroad. So please give Ian Fur a warm round of applause. Thank you so much for joining me, Kheti and, and Ian. Academia and business, vastly different worlds. But I'm almost certain we can weave some commonalities or themes within those because ultimately it is individuals who occupy those sectors and what characteristics or tools which they deploy to become successful might be common amongst all of us. So I'm so delighted that you could, could join us. For both of you, in fact, I'd like to kick off with the latest developments because when we last spoke, um, I think, uh, Prof, I'll start with you. Mm-hmm. When we last spoke, which was I think in about May last year, um, you were still at UNISA and mm-hmm. since then there have been a number of developments you are now at UCT. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring us up to speed. What has that been like? Okay, it's been interesting. I checked, I think it's now day number 426. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not counting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting. So, um, and it's been, it's been interesting. I mean, UCT is very different to UNISA. I mean, it's, it's almost like two universities both interested in higher education, faculties similar, departments, some of them similar, but 
they do different things. One, at UCT, UCT is a research-intensive university, so research is big business, and I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research and Internationalization, which is the big business of the university. At UNISA, I was the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research and, and, and Innovation, but at UNISA, teaching and learning is big business. Mm -hmm. So they are more a teaching university, whereas UCT is more a research university. Mm -hmm. And so, so, as you can imagine, at UNISA, I argued for the place for research. Mm -hmm. At UCT, the place for research is settled. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. I've, got to, I've got to work on how does research enable teaching and learning to thrive. Whereas at, at UNISA, I, I had to argue for the place why research is important for teaching and learning and why teaching and learning should be interested mm -hmm. that research thrives. Mm -hmm. So it's completely different. But it's also different in, in, in a, and, and that of course means that when you lead it, you've got to think carefully about how you do this, okay? The other big difference, and I'll stop with this one because mm -hmm. there's other differences. These sure. two are, 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 are more important to me. Um, it's, it's how excellence is seen at the different places. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when I was at Tunisia, I, I argued for excellence. I didn't want to discuss its complexity. <laughs> you gotta do it, finish and clap. <laughs> at UCT, I, I, I critique excellence mm. and what excellence does mm. and how disabling and it can be, and how it can marginalize, silence, mm -hmm. and exclude other people. Mm -hmm. And so I argue for how do you make sure that you drive excellence mm -hmm. at the same time as being inclusive mm -hmm. and make it enabling and strengthening for everyone mm -hmm. rather than make it exclusionary. Yeah. Whereas at UNISA, my message was excellence is non-negotiable, I don't want to hear anything. Mm. And here I'm like, Oh, excellence, let's talk some more. <laughs> and that's a difference, because in a place of excellence, mm. and, and it's because UCT is, is, is the number one university in Africa, on the continent. Mm. And I asked the question, we are the best in Africa, but are we the best for Africa? Ah. That was never an issue at Tunisia. Yes. We were the best, we wanted to be the best university in Africa, and that was okay. Yeah. But now that we are, UCT is, we are the best in Africa, I ask, are we the best for Africa? And so it, the two institutions, the position hasn't changed. I'm still number two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the job, the yeah. job has changed. I'm not sure if my employers mm -hmm. see that change. Mm -hmm. That's how I've conceptualized the change. And it's a very important change because it characterizes also the diversity of our country. Indeed. It's fascinating. Yep. And we're going to explore that and, and sort of tease into the complexities of our country. But first, we want to get to know you as individuals a little bit better. <laughs> um, Ian, we last spoke in September last year. Yes. I went to your head offices in Ravonia. You were buried under a pile of papers. And the big thing for you then is that um, you'd recently expanded to that three stores in London. You were about to open a fourth in That's February right. this year. But since then, the business has been bought by Long for Life, uh, right. uh, Joffy's business. Tell us That's about right. that. What led to that? Well, we'd been approached by a number of different companies, mm. private equity firms, listed companies. But until he came along, we weren't really interested. I must say, he came and he's such a, a legend in the business world. And I thought, well, 
I would love to work with this guy. And then the next thing he said that Kevin Hedewick from Famous Brands is also <laughs> joining him. So that was that added some fuel to the fire and we thought, okay, I think these are the guys we want to go with. Mm -hmm. And so we yeah, recently sold the company to them. And now we're part of a listed entity, which is something that I have never done in my life before. Yes. I've always worked for myself. So it's a bit of a paradigm shift, but I'm looking forward to it. And it gives us opportunity to make acquisitions in the beauty space, in the health and beauty world, and to see if we can build a bit of a beauty conglomerate over the next you know, several years. Does, does your operational or management role change at all in this new structure? Not really. We'll carry on the whole team. My children, I have three children, and, and my niece and my partners will continue to run the business. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will we'll run the business, and, and, but we will get support and help from, from these guys and hopefully learn a lot from their amazing wisdom and experience. Okay. Okay, so that's the latest developments from our that's two speakers. Amazing. Please give them a warm round of applause for these new developments. Katie, yeah. I, I want us now to step back because mm -hmm. we need to find out what has informed your career path. Uh -huh. um, I first interviewed you, I think it may have been some 12, 15 years ago. Um, I stalled doing a breakfast show many, yes. many years ago um, with the national broadcaster at the yeah. time. And I was fascinated by Matt's education. You know, what, what sparked your own interest in this field? Okay, I mean, normally when I tell people that I studied mathematics, they assume that I was smart. <laughs> and, and I, we know you are. <laughs> but here's the truth that people don't know. In many ways, it was, a, it was an easy choice because I wasn't really doing well in everything else. It was the only thing. I felt, I felt comfortable and I felt and I was doing well in. Okay. Um, um, even when you look at my university results, they are quite interesting because of all my modules, mathematics was the only one that I got above 70%. Um, I mean, people don't know that I failed chemistry. I mean, mm. people talk about failing maths because mm. it's like a badge of honor. Mm. Nobody talks about failing biology or mm. chemistry. Uh, but I did, okay? Um, but, I, but I recognized my strength. I recognized that um, maths is my strength and I want to do it. At the time when I was at high school, um, things like natural science engineering were unthinkable. They were not there. We didn't even know mm -hmm. that something like that exists. Mm -hmm. so, well, maybe it's poverty. Maybe other people yeah. uh, knew that. So, so I just studied and majored in mathematics. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, I didn't know what will I do with it. Mm -hmm. And so, so um, uh, after my, 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 my junior degree, I, I went back to my high school, which had turned into a, a college. Mm -hmm. And they, they, I just went in to greet my teachers. And, and they said, oh, what did you get for maths? You, you, did your, you majored in maths? And I got, I got 74%. And we were like, we need a maths lecturer. Come and join us. Yeah. And I was a 21-year-old graduate. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that was where my love for maths education started. Mm -hmm. and, and it's really, to put it um, short, it's a discipline on its own mathematics education. Mm -hmm. I started it from pure mathematics. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and it's more than just knowing mathematics for yourself. Um, uh, it requires knowing mathematics not only for yourself, but for others as well. And maths education is not just about teaching. It's also about other things that enable teaching. Okay, so, so whether it's a, a sociological, linguistic, philosophical issues that, that 
that and political issues that uh, uh, play a part in learning and teaching. Mm. Mathematics education will become part of that. So, so, so my journey into maths was because it's a place of comfort. Wow. It wasn't because I was smarter. It's because yeah. I wasn't doing well at anything yeah. else. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's not a place of comfort for Ian. He told us earlier he wasn't very good at maths, no. but... Beauty is not a place of comfort. <laughs> but, but <laughs> I had to do my nails because I was going to meet Ian. Yes. Yes. I didn't think about this. I yes. thought, should I go with my nails partly cloudy and so, that, so that he can give me a voucher? Or, a voucher. I should, or I should look the part. So I chose to look the part so that Ian is and not then, And then Katie can help Ian with the maths and yeah. vice versa. Please. Okay, I see Please. where this is going. Ian, let's talk a bit about your beginnings. Um, was, was being in business, you mentioned earlier that you've always worked for yourself. Correct. Was it something that was informed by something that happened in your childhood or your family, or is it something that happened much later on? Well, I think my family started it. My father was one of the founding directors of Russell Furnishes back in the 50s. Yeah. So, um, so he sort of taught me a lot, and my older brother. And one day, in fact, my older brother came back from America, and he said he'd seen this business there called Kmart. Mm. And, he, and he said, we should start a Kmart in South Africa and aim it at the black market. And, and he said, well, you know, we've got to do this. And I said, well, that's great, but who's going to do it? Because I was only 22 years old. So he said, you, you're going to do it. So uh, and I said, well, that sounds uh, um, terrifying, really, because I've, I've never been in retail. I don't know about big department stores. I don't know about managing people. And I certainly don't know about the black market. So I said what most naive 22-year-old boys would say. I said, sure, let's do this. Um, <laughs> and then we used, and, you know, and we opened Kmart, and of course we, we weren't very good. I didn't know much about registering trademarks and things <laughs> like that. So we just, you know, used their name, um, <laughs> which was a little dumb. Um, and to make matters worse, we used their logo as well. We thought, <laughs> Goodness. We, we, we thought, you know, one. if it worked for them, why shouldn't it work for us? <laughs> Sometimes so, called cheating. And, yes. and we opened Kmart on the 1st of July 1976, just, yeah. just a couple of weeks after the beginning of the Soweto uprising. Mm -hmm. and, and the world just changed com you know, completely for me. And there I was with thousands of people, um, you know, that had come from all over the place because my uh, brother said to me, we need to keep the prices low. So I cut the hell out of the prices and half the country arrived uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, at the doorstep. And, uh, you know, there I was. I was the only white person in the business. The rest were black. The staff were black. The customers were black. And it wasn't difficult to uh, spot the white boy there hanging out. And, uh, and that's how we started. And, and uh, then it... Lasted 27 years, that business, and we eventually sold it to Edcon. It became Supermart. It, it changed from Kmart to Supermart, and, and then Edcon bought Supermart in about 2003, and they changed it to Jetmart. So now it's today, it's called Jetmart, yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so a vast difference then between selling furniture yes. to getting our... Our nails done. Yes. yes. How does that transition happen? Well, you know, I was lying on a massage table. Um, <laughs> As one does, right? <laughs> and there wasn't, there was no happy endings there. It was just a normal, 
normal, normal, it was a normal professional massage and the, and the beauty therapist said to me, why don't you look into the beauty industry? It was just after we had sold Supermart, I was looking for something to do. And I always liked to go into new industries. Um, I didn't want to do the same thing. I'd been in music, I'd been in retailing, I'd been in consulting. And here was an opportunity to go into something completely new. And she said, why don't you look at the beauty industry? And I said, well, I, I, don't, I can't really relate to the beauty industry. I mean, as far as I was concerned, a, a Brazilian was a person who lived in Brazil. You know? <laughs> I, 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 had, I had no idea. Um, and Hollywood was a place they made movies. And then, but then I learned more about waxing and, and stuff. And, and, and eventually we... You know, it's quite amazing, actually. We have a, a service that we offer called a three-quarter leg wax. And I'm sure the ladies will be familiar <laughs> with, with that. And, and it's always sort of really bothered me as to which quarter they leave out. I have nightmares of people leaving our salon with hairy ankles. And, and <laughs> it's, it's, ter it's terrible. Anyway, so um, the opportunity was I looked at the beauty industry and there were no chains, there were no branded chains to speak of. It was all hundreds and hundreds of independent operators and I thought, well, there lies the opportunity to try and see if we can build a brand. And then we bought up a couple of stores with the money I had received from the sale of Supermart and uh, learned the business. And then we started to open up more and more stores and uh, the first four or five years were, were, were hard. We call them the dark days, uh, where we had to keep pumping money in. We, we it, it took us nearly five years to sell our first franchise. And so the first five years were tough, but then we started to roll. And today we have uh, over 190 salons around the country. Wow. And, yeah. and have expanded, as I said earlier. And, oh, yes, and we've got That's four good. in London, and we're opening a fifth one next month. Yeah. Great. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Prof, you described in our conversation that one of the biggest difficulties about academia has been how to navigate that world. You describe it as being quite opaque. Uh -huh. Tell us more and how you have navigated it to the levels at which you are now. Yeah, it, it's, op it's opaque because People assume that you, when you work at university, you teach. That's all you do. <laughs> um, some people even ask when the schools close. They think you closed. <laughs> you know, like schools close, university mm. academics must be at home. Okay. Um, but actually, it's a it's a it's a business of knowledge. And so, to succeed in it, you've got to figure out how it works. What 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 would what would make you get ahead in it? Mm. Um, and what does impact looks like? What does success look like in the space? So the success in academia mm. is not about making money. Mm. That's not to say you're going to starve. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but the success is about the knowledge that you produce and who's interested in it. Mm. So in fact, in academia, it's pretty good mm. if you write something. Yeah. People read it. And rather than just keeping quiet, they disagree with you. They better disagree with you rather than keeping quiet altogether. Because, because being ignored is very much a big problem. <laughs> it means your ideas are... You are, are very are. irrelevant. <laughs> you are not even worth arguing with. 
or disagreeing with. So it's the idea, of course, some people will agree with you and they will build on your ideas to do other bigger things, will use your theories or your methodologies to do things. But some people, if people also take an effort, make an effort to disagree with you, it means you are relevant, they take you seriously. And so when we measure the impact of the work, we look at who is citing you, mm -hmm. who is doing what with your work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so that's why if you publish something, nobody cites it. Yeah. It doesn't matter, even if they read it, we don't know, but if they don't cite it, mm -hmm. it, it means it's, not, it's mm -hmm. not doing anything to the knowledge enterprise yeah. in your mm -hmm. discipline. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's for a hardcore academic like myself, that's more important than money. Yes. Okay, so, so that's our, our capital. Mm. And, and so, what that, because that knowledge, it, 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 your, work, your, your job is to influence. Okay, you influence the discipline that you are in, mm -hmm. you influence, you can influence practice, you can influence policy, you influence society, you influence how things are done. Mm. But doing that, that, part of that influencing comes through teaching. Mm. Okay, so teaching mm. is not just to teach, so that you repeat other people's ideas. Mm. It's also that your ideas go in. Mm. So if you're, you're, a, you're an academic who's not an active researcher and a productive researcher, mm. really, really, really what you're doing is repeating other people's yeah. ideas. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine, other people do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it, but, 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 but what it means is that you're not at the cutting edge. Sure. Academics at the cutting edge, at the high level, mm -hmm. uh, uh, do that. They influence, they influence the discipline, the policy, practice, mm -hmm. society, in many different ways. That they, and, and so you see, that's why you see sometimes new programs, new degree programs come up. They come up because of people who do research. You do research, you introduce a module, you introduce a new MPhil mm -hmm. or an MSc or a whatever, because there's... There, there's something that has grown out of research. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the impact. We, yeah. we, we measure the, and, and, and of course, there's lots of debates about, um, you know, uh, today about decolonizing knowledge yes. mm -hmm. and, and, and where that mm -hmm. comes from. And, 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 and sometimes there's a, there's a misunderstanding that when people talk about decolonization or Africanization of higher education, so mm -hmm. people think you just, want to, you just want to engage with African knowledge and stay in mm -hmm. Africa. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Part of the agenda is to make African knowledge influence the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? The knowledge that we do here yeah, influence the world. It's, mm. it's to say, well, our knowledge, our no what, what influences our knowledge? That's the first question. Which theories do we, grow, do we draw from? Mm -hmm. Which methodologies do we draw from? And so on. But it doesn't stop there. It also says, where does it go? Mm -hmm. Who does it influence? What does it change? Yeah. And to do, to make a change, influence and whatever, mm -hmm. you, you don't force people to do that. Yeah. It's about the rigor of the work. Yeah. How rigorous the work is, it becomes more influential. So, so and, 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 and there's many ways in which we make our work visible and, 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 and make it go, you know, there's publications, but there's conference presentations, yes. there's, there's all sorts of things mm -hmm. that we do. But, but it's a fascinating business. And, yeah. and, and you see there, there isn't a clear roadmap yeah. because successful academics get to the top in different ways. Yeah. And I've, I think I've been fortunate because I've, had, I've really had a, a brilliant mentor. Yes. People always say to me, why do you talk about yes. me mentor? And mm -hmm. on that note, yeah. I want us to listen in on what you said about ah. your mentor. Thank you. Karen? <laughs> 
There's a lot of hard work. I mean, I, I, I sleep very little. But I always say there are so many people who work hard. So that's not enough. I think I figured out very early in my career what makes a successful academic career. I think there are many people in the academic space who haven't figured out what makes a successful, a, a successful academic career. So they get a doctorate and they think that's it. But actually that's just the license to practice. And then you've got to understand what's the practice. You know, and, and I've been lucky to meet people, to work with people, perhaps even to, to be humble enough to listen to people who understand the business and work with them and learn from them. But at the same time, it also getting to where I am has also taken other people opening the way for me, creating opportunities for me, holding my hand, cheering, jumping up and down that I should keep going and, and telling me not to give up when I have to because nobody succeeds on their own. You know, on your journey, there's always people who hold your hand. And I think I've been lucky to meet the right people to do that. When I say that to my mentor, who I still have a good relationship with, continues to be my mentor, even though he, she claims I'm her mentor too. <laughs> Who's your mentor? It's <laughs> Professor Jill Adler. Okay. She's advanced. And, and every time I say this to her and, and, and I say, you know, thank you, thank you for for opening the way, for creating a possibility, for holding my hands, for creating an opportunity, for making it work for me, you know, and for being the person that I can look at and see this is how it can be done. And so thank you. I say thank you to her for playing her game so well that I learned from it. And she says, no, 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 but it's you. You were that kind of student. You were that kind of person. And I say to her, just imagine clay when you make you know, a potter. A potter has got clay and they've got hands. You can get good quality clay and bad hands. You, you cannot produce a quality vase. And you can have the best hands and worst quality clay. It will not be the best. So you need both. So as much as she thinks uh, I was just the right person, she says you were going to succeed anyway. I don't think so. I think her hands. I think I, I landed in, to, in good quality hands. I really like what you're saying there because it's not often that you speak to people who are successful or leaders who always make a point of referring to their mentor or the person who guided them. Tell us a bit more about why this relationship has been so important and in what ways in your own career you're starting to pay it forward, as it were. I don't know, I think, I, think I, I, uh, and people ask me all, that, all the time, you're a DVC, you're a V-rated scientist, what's mm. your problem? It's not a problem. Mm. It's an acknowledgement, mm -hmm. and, and it's also a message to young people mm. that we'd never get there alone. Yeah. Yeah. Success looks good. Mm. It looks smooth. It looks unproblematic. It looks mm -hmm. like there were no mistakes. There were no <laughs> hiccups. You just sailed through. You were born to have it. Mm. And so it looks impossible. Yeah. You know? And many young people look and they think, I can't do that. I wasn't born that way. Mm. But, but telling young people, t being explicit about um, how my mentor played a role, mm -hmm. and there's other people as well, is, is to say, I didn't get here on my own. I'm not self-made. Sure. sure, I work hard. I work damn hard. I still do. Mm -hmm. But even when you work hard, even when you're gifted, mm -hmm. it's always good to have people showing you the way, mm -hmm. people who advocate for you when you're not there. Mm -hmm people who do things, who, who sometimes they don't tell you what to do, mm. who are there, you watch them. Right. Yeah. And, and it's to say to young people, sometimes you don't have to get them giving you lectures. Just have the right, choose the right people to watch mm. and see how they play the game. Yeah. That's how you learn the game as well. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's basically that. And Ian, 
Who have been your mentors in, in the field of business? Well, different mentors in different industries. Mm. Uh, when I was in the music industry, um, I was mentored by Kaifa Semenya. Wow. Yeah. That's so, a good so, so, <laughs> so he was a partner of mine, and I, I had a record company called Munjali Productions, mm. and he was a partner with me, and we distributed Letembulu's music in mm. South Africa as well as his own. Mm and uh, grew from there and then we, we took on Huma Sikela, we had the Soul Brothers, so we had some exciting artists back in those good old days. In, in business, in terms of Kmart, I was mentored by a gentleman called Tsatsi Mosala, who was one of the leaders of Azapo at the time. So we were, as far as I can actually tell, we were the first company in South Africa to have black directors and shareholders back in 1977. And, um, and we had a whole contingent of Azapo leaders working for us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and these guys came to us and they said they were banned and, and you know, they couldn't sort of get into public gatherings and stuff. So they came and asked if, if, you know, if they could work there. So we had a guy called Labon Mabasa who was the leader of, of, of Azapo at one point in time. And during the day, he was a warehouse manager, and at night he was plotting to overthrow the government. <laughs> so we, and those are the guys I learned from, and, uh, and I had some fantastic mentors you know, in those days, in the early days. In the, I think in the beauty industry, um, I don't know um, if I can think of any particular people, but the lady that started me off in this business, she was a therapist, and then of course now my wife, um, she's in the, in the beauty therapy education field, so, mm. so you would like her. Um, and, she's, <laughs> and she's trying to teach me the difference between a manicure and a pedicure, so I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the interesting things that you spoke about um, last year when you told me the story of Sorbe was your business philosophy. Let's take a listen at what that philosophy is. If you have a, a basic business philosophy, it really doesn't matter what industry you're in. You just have to then learn the nuances of that industry, but the basic philosophy will hopefully sort of keep you in good stead no matter where you are. And, and what is and, that and philosophy? That, that, that philosophy is our, our business philosophy, which we call the soul of Sorbet. And, and it's really, if you try and analyze what has given us our competitive advantage, I would say it has to be the, the attitude of our people. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we're a fairly typical beauty salon. We offer pretty much the same treatments as most other salons. Uh, we, we sell pretty much the same products. Our look and feel is a bit different, but, but other than that, you know, we're out there competing, but, you know, and most people can, can copy those things. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to copy a culture and I think that's where we, we come through strongly. So that culture, that philosophy of people before profit has always been my sort of driving business philosophy and it didn't really matter what industry, you could still apply those things. So that's your business philosophy. Correct. Fascinating. Indeed. When we talk about success and how to go about achieving, regardless of which sector is it, what is your own definition of success and has that changed over the years for you? Well it's changed dramatically uh, and when I was 22 and starting out I think uh, success was all about money and, and power and influence and fast cars and 
Faust women. Fast women. Fast. Fast. Okay. And then, then as you grow older, and you know, with the grey hairs and, and the 40 years of, of entrepreneurial experience, you start to understand that it's not about the money, and that you don't go to work to make money. You don't go into business to make money. You go to work and you go into business to serve the needs and wants of people, and if you do that well, then you'll make lots of money. So, so today my definition of success would be the the extent of the contribution that you make to other people's lives, mm. uh, as opposed to how much you enrich yourselves. At the end of the day, the purpose of work is to serve, not to make money. Mm. And if you try and understand the importance of why you're in business rather than what you're doing and how you're doing it, if you understand why, it's never about the money. Money is always the result. It's never the purpose. And I think too many companies, too many entrepreneurs go into the business with the sole, um, the sole purpose of wanting to make as much money as they can as quickly as possible, and that you know, inevitably will lead to failure. So as an entrepreneur, you need a couple of perhaps characteristics that I think are important. You need um, intuition, which is the fundamental belief that things are right even though you don't have the evidence to prove it. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and then you have, um, you need courage because you, know, you can't go into business if you're afraid to fail. I think failure is very important actually. It, you know, it helps you, I, I certainly have failed over the years and it helps you towards success. So you need courage to hold your head when others around you are losing theirs. And, uh, and you need stamina for the long haul. I think people think they want to make money quickly and it's got to be a year or two. But our business, you know, that one that we spoke about is 27 years. This is 12 years now and I see another, you know, at least 10, 15 years before I die. And, and <laughs> <laughs> We'll and the business will anyway. continue to run. So it's about the long term. You know, if you go into business to do things in the short term, then you cut corners. You try and you know, save money here and you save money there. You make mistakes and you don't put service first. You put money first. And that's a, that's a fundamental flaw in business. You must put people before profits. You must put service before reward. And you must always believe in the strength of your brand and the fortitude of of your determination to make it work. So sometimes you, you think you're, you know, you're about to throw in the towel like I did when I was after four or five years of sober, I thought, you know, what on earth, you know, kind of led me into this horrible situation that I'm in. And then you just believe, you have to believe, you put your head down and you keep going and if, you know, eventually it, it starts to come through. Okay, I see you nodding uh, quite a bit here. How and in what ways has your own definition of success changed over, over the years, if at all? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's changed. I mean, like Ian, at the beginning, I mean, I think growing up poor mm -hmm. meant that money was important. Mm -hmm. But you know, also, Nikiwe, when you grow up poor in a township, whatever, the car you drive, the house, you know, yeah. those kind of things yeah. seemed important. But, but, but it quickly mm -hmm. moved away from there. For me, um, it moved from being about money, and I'm glad that I never chased money. Yes. That very quickly, whilst I was doing my doctorate, I was being recruited elsewhere to do different things, and I kept saying no, and I stayed at VETS mm. to complete my doctorate, and I worked there, 
and, and, and I remember one professor who was at the University of Pretoria sending me an email and said, I'm surprised you're still at VETS a year later after your doctorate. <laughs> People like you don't stay. Mm. They move on to make money. And I'm glad that I didn't mm. because I had a different dream. And, and it's, it's moved from that to be about choice, mm. the ability to have choice, to, to be able to make choices. Mm. Choices about, it may look trivial, mm. but about where I live, mm. who I live with, what mm. I eat, where I work. Mm -hmm. You know, the, there's a freedom. Yeah. There, there's poverty. Mm. One of the things that poverty does, it limits your choices. When the, the poorer you are, mm. the less choices you have. And for me, that, that's been important, mm. you know? And it, got, it moved from the choice to the fact that what are my wants, what are my needs, mm. okay? And I've got to stage where I, I don't, I don't, there are things that I don't, I don't need in my life, mm. you know? Of course some people think they make you look cool, they make you seem successful, but I don't need them, mm. okay? Um, and, and mixing all of those choice and need and whatever, got to stage even, even the things, when, when you get to a particular level mm. of success, mm. even getting an invitation, invitations from overseas to speak mm. and whatever, mm. at this level, mm. there was a time when I didn't have a choice, I was like, invitation, I'm yeah, <laughs> everything is a yes. <laughs> and now, who am I gonna talk to yeah. in Sweden? Mm. If, I go, if mm. I go to the US, who am I gonna speak to? Mm. What is it about? Mm -hmm. What is it going to influence? What is mm -hmm. I'm making choices. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a month apart. I don't want to travel. You make a choice. Yeah. There was a time when that choice was impossible. Mm -hmm. And it gets to a stage when it's that the, the, the choice. Mm -hmm. I don't need this talk. Yeah. I can mm -hmm. do the other talk. Yeah. And, and, and that, for me, is part of the success journey. Sure. And now, lately, mm -hmm. I've been thinking, you know, Part of what makes me feel successful is that I've managed to keep my career going, my personal life, my children. Mm. My children are graduates, wow. Nikiwe. Come on. That we are you know what I mean? again in the I mean, yeah. I, you look, of course it is grace. Mm. I mean, how could I have done this? Mm. But, but it's, you think balls can fall off. Mm. The fact that I can, I can still read my son's chapters for, for his honors thesis and give wow. him feedback and, and, and still manage to keep my balls up and read my chapter and do this and run there mm -hmm. and, and still be normal. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, so I felt like, I feel now that it is having been able to keep the personal side of me mm -hmm. and my children say, mm -hmm. and my career mm -hmm. afloat. Mm -hmm all of them, at this age, that I've, I've managed to do that, that, that makes me feel that successful. There was a time when I thought, my children getting distinctions is great, and of course, I say graduates, people clap, but here's the thing, it's the fact that they're graduates, I feel like that's, anyone can do that. It's keeping the fact that they're graduates and they are good human beings. Yeah. It's like, they're together. You know, I congratulate, I said, well done, boy. Not only do you have a degree, look at you. Yeah. Yeah. You're a well-rounded human being. You're a good person. And that matters that more matters. than the degree. You can be the best economics. And yeah. I say, you are going to be that. Mm. But if you don't have mm -hmm. this humanity, yeah.
will come to nothing. And, mm-hmm. and that makes me feel good, that I can look at them and feel that it's the academic side and the other side mm-hmm. is... And of course, it's all fragile. Yeah. And, and so you, you, you live in faith mm-hmm. and hope that they keep it up and they become, um, uh, uh, you know, yeah. that which they are meant to be and live it with dignity and, and you know, and integrity and everything that you want to see in your kids. Yeah. I mean, I follow you on, on social media and I feel deeply insecure because... Oh, please. You, <laughs> I don't know when you sleep, uh, for starters, and you're up at 4 a.m. I'm always... Looking, three. My goodness, at three, and at work at four... And I look at all these incredible things that you're doing, and, you, and you're traveling, and you have this little hashtag that you use, that ulalanjanung in a PhD, right? Which means, how can you be asleep without your doctoral degree? Oh, goodness, that pressure, that pressure. But it is inspiring, and I assure you that it inspires the rest of us to keep pushing as well. Let's talk about legacy and what kind of legacy you strive for yourselves. And let's start with you. Uh, legacy, I, th- I think it's important that you leave behind the notion that you were there to lift people. You know, I, I believe in the concept of servant leadership and, mm-hmm. we, and we practice that in our business. Mm-hmm. And it's quite different to the traditional style of management which mm-hmm. is control based and it's top down mm-hmm. and it's all about power and control. Uh, and compared to servant leadership which is about lifting people up, so yeah. it's about growing people about contributing to their lives, mm-hmm. it's about giving them the gift of being able to fulfill their potential. And so I think from a servant leadership point of view, that's something I would, I would like to leave behind mm-hmm. because once you can nurture people and make a difference in their lives, that really must be the purpose of life. It, it, you know, I've never believed that the purpose of life is to enrich yourself because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, when you go and you, and you die, um, I don't think you can put your house in that grave. It's not going to fit. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I don't know if this is that still working? And the car and the money and all that, you know, I don't think anyone's going to worry about that. It's about mm-hmm. the legacy. What did you leave behind? What contribution did you make to other people's lives? How did you grow your children? How did they grow you? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, those are the things that I think are important. It's always about people. It's never, ever about money. Mm-hmm. Petty, you'd mentioned that when the history of maths education is taught in this country, your name has to be up there. I, you know, I, it, I, I say that to myself because it's been like perhaps more than 10 years that people say, oh, you must be vice chancellor of, of the university. You must be this, you must be that. You know, because people think I should be yeah. aspiring, power, power. Mm. You know, and I, and I say, I can retire today. I mm. can die today. I'd be happy because if the history of math education, mathematics and mathematics mm. education mm. were to be written today, mm. if it doesn't have my name in it, it's incomplete. Finish it <laughs> It is incomplete. It's incomplete. How yeah. could it? <laughs> then it is not. It yeah. is not it. Okay? Yeah. And, and that history... That history, my view is that it doesn't matter who writes it. Mm. If it's written by a South African, and I'm not there, it's fake. <laughs> if it's written by <laughs> an international news. scholar in mathematics or mathematics education, and I'm not there, it's fake. Mm. Because the name and the work and the influence of the work is not just here, it's mm. beyond the country. Mm. And, and, and that's important mm. for me. But I mean, I think that's the legacy in terms of the mathematics education. Mm. It's sort of 
I've always been bothered about the fact that I don't want to be the only one. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know, I was the first to get this mm. doctorate, first black African woman in South mm. Africa to get this doctorate. I don't want to be the last. And, mm. and that's the thing that mm. I would like, I, I, that's why I'm committed so much to, to young people. Yeah. But, but I think what encapsulates all my life, and I always say, I live to give hope. Mm. When I'm gone, I mean, I, if, if you, you say I make you insecure on social media, that's not <laughs> the idea. But here's, no, no, the, no, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I work, I work as if I never play. Mm. When I play, I play as if I never work. <laughs> if you follow me on social media, you will know that. Mm. I climb mountains. My husband and I do that. Mm. We climb mountains. We do all sorts of things. But of course, I get up at 3, 5 o'clock. <laughs> I'm in the office. I finish at 9, da, da, da. But that's when I work, and, and you think I never play. But I live to give hope. Mm. Um, I share my stories on social media and on my blogs, mm. on my website, to, to also show young people that you can grow up poor. My mm. sub A was under a tree in a mm. village called Marabiane, mm. at the end of the world. Mm. Under a tree, for goodness sake. Mm. From sub A under a tree, to now, at 50, mm. at the top university on the continent. Excuse me. <laughs> Anyone can do it. And, and so that's, for me, that's the hope I want to I wanna give. Yeah. I wanna, if I'm, when I'm not here, I want every young black person, at least, to say, she, she did this. Yeah. There's hope for me. Exactly. If, if she could do with this journey, mm. there's hope for me. And people say, keep, keep saying, write the book, write the book mm. now. I'm not chasing anything. Mm. The story is not done. Mm -hmm. It's a journey. The chapters are building. Sure. And it will come. But I want to give hope, and that's that's all. Um, yeah, that's yeah, sure. And it, it, it's happening. You know, yeah. you've inspired so many young people. I'm going to open it up to the floor for questions. But whilst we prepare for that, someone is going to have a roving mic. I want to wrap up with you by asking. I, I, you did say a little earlier on about at UCT you're now critiquing excellence, and so I want us to 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 stretch that a little bit and talk about the challenges we have as a country, um, whether it's institutions like UCT, which are criticized for a lack of transformation, or the South African business space, and to the extent to which it's inclusive when it comes to ownership by the majority in the country. In, let's start with you. How and in what ways are we going to change this, and, and what role are you playing in, in that space? Okay, I'm quite passionate about a subject that I call building community. and. Uh, and in South Africa, unfortunately, we suffer from a lack of tolerance. Mm -hmm. I, I've been involved in, in the 90s, I was involved in race relations consulting. I spent seven years doing that during the transformation period. And uh, I just believe that we haven't been able to understand properly, especially in business, that we're working within a socio-political environment, mm -hmm. which is not conducive to actually working together. So when people come into the workplace, they come from different backgrounds, and different places, and different cultures, and races, and religions. And, uh, and I think the important thing about that is that there's no tolerance and acceptance. So you can't create a platform of service in a business if you haven't got that strength of community amongst the, the diverse people that have all come into this one yeah. space. And, and I always say that even um, despite the fact that South Africa hasn't really been able to build that, that amazing rainbow nation yeah. that Mandela spoke about when he came out of prison, we could still try and build these um, rainbow communities, I call them, within our 
our organizations, as long as we can understand that we have to respect and tolerate and accept people who are different from us, and we have to be able to work together, and I think that if we can do that, and I think we're trying quite hard within our organization to show that there is a way to do this in South Africa, we can be a bit of a hopefully a beacon of light mm -hmm. and show what can be done because mm -hmm. the real difference in Solvay, I believe, compared to its competitors is in the strength of our people mm -hmm. and the attitude of our people and that comes from the environment in which they're working mm -hmm. and that comes from the strength of the community that we've been able to build mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I come from a, a Jewish background and, uh, and when I went to school they they told me that, that we were the chosen people of God, which is cool. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that, was, that was very nice, but you know, and, and, and uh, but because you're young and naive, and I went to a Jewish school, you you get caught up in this bubble, and, and you don't get any opportunity to interact with anyone else. So by the time I left school, and you know, I mean, I just knew nothing other than that we were chosen by God. So, so we, I went into the army uh, for my compulsory military service in 1971, and there I met another group of people, um, and they were white Afrikaans-speaking males who were running the army, and I thought that I had been chosen by God, but <laughs> for sure they they didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't were first in the They queue. didn't agree with me, and and and, and you know, the, and and what I mean, the guy was calling me all kinds of names, you know. So from one day I, I was there, up there, chosen by God. The next day I was lowered. <laughs> so it was a hell of a fall, and and then the guys were saying to me that they were chosen by God, and so that was a real dilemma. Um, I, I, was, I was 17 years old at the time. And, and here I am, and I have to ask some really tough questions, and this is where it gets serious, is who's doing the choosing here, and, and, and why is he so confused? Um, <laughs> and and, and, and at the, I think that's where the lesson came, which I have carried with me my whole life, is that there is no such thing as a superior a group of people, there's no chosen race, there's no chosen people, we're all just different, and the sooner we learn to accept and respect our differences, the better off our country would be, and, and, and I think that, that's where we have to work hard on trying to get over that and build these rainbow communities. Fantastic. Right, Katie, certainly, I mean, the universities have, are contested spaces, UCT no less. I mean, I think we've seen uh, fees must fall, roads must fall, playing itself out in what is, as you say, Africa's best university. How, how are you finding that dynamic, and what, what do you see as your role in this massive transformation project, which must and should take place mm. at an institution like UCT. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm very central to, to the contestation. Mm. Firstly, because, because of who I am, mm. but also because of um, the expectation that, that students have. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I interact, and, and some people here might have read the statement that I wrote last year. Mm. Um, and um, and I, I just, I just, from where I'm sitting, I, I, I mean, I, I, I analyzed what, what, what's going on, and I, I'm surprised at the, at the response. So some people get angry at mm -hmm. what's going on, mm -hmm. and I can understand the anger. Um, 
I, I have focused on why is it happening. Mm -hmm. Because I think the only way to, be, to deal with, with, with the situation is to understand it first, sure. rather than to, to blame and label people. Mm -hmm. Because if I start labeling people thugs or whatever, mm -hmm. then it means I, I, don't, I don't have to deal with it. You mm -hmm. must just go to jail. Mm -hmm. okay? um, and I, I also have taken this as, and maybe it's because I've got children, mm -hmm. that you think, these are my children. Okay, they are angry mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty by association, I'm management, finish mm. and clock, mm. okay? So I'm management, so I'm guilty by association. What do I do to, to do this? Because there's life after mm. all this contestation, we still mm. go to class and, yeah. and they are here to get degrees after all. Yeah. And, and I've, I've, I, my view is that we all want the same things in South Africa. It doesn't matter what race you are, mm. all young people, everyone wants to get ahead. Mm. Now, if you're in a space that automatically um, assumes that you can never get ahead or positions you in a way that says you can never get ahead until you stop being you. Mm. You must first assimilate to this culture. Only when you have assimilated can you get the goodies that mm. we are all here to get. Mm. That's a problem. Mm. Okay, now, look at it this way. I mean, the, people think when you go to university, what makes you successful is just intellectual capacity mm. and your metric results mm. gives us a sense of that. Mm. And that's why universities select by results and we do points and mm. we select your run short of two points, we don't take you, must walk somewhere. Mm. That in and of itself doesn't mm. make any child successful. Yeah. You walk into a culture, a culture that may be very foreign. I, and I was saying to someone, you know, for some students, mm who live and have grown at Google Edge, mm. they come to UCT. For them, it's like going to a far away country, mm. somewhere overseas. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, it's a different country it's completely. Mm. I can feel its difference. Mm. It's, a very, it's a very different place. Mm -hmm. it's, um, uh, sometimes it makes you feel like you're on trial. Mm. It questions your being that um, and I sometimes ask myself, if I feel this place does this, how much more yeah. of a young person from the Eastern Cape, yeah. from some rural village in the Eastern Cape who got seven distinctions and we got them here. Yeah. They've got the intellectual capacity, they can cope intellectually, but culturally they can't. Yeah. Okay. Just even in the simple thing of how do you interact in class, what yeah. are the accepted modes sure. of interaction? So they're in class, students from upper middle class families, as the lecturers, with the lecturer pauses, they say, oh, what about this? You are waiting, you are busy raising your hand. <laughs> Nobody's looking at you. Yeah. It, took a lot, it took a lot of courage to raise your hand in the yeah. first place. Um, you're seeing bum shots for the first time mm. all over the show. <laughs> you must deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Where you come from, this yeah. is taboo. This yeah. is taboo. Yeah. It's not allowed. Yeah. And you're expected to come into class and focus with all these things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Not just focus, learn. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, th there's a whole lot of things. You have a room alone, you, yeah. you've got to, you know, no teacher monitors. So it's, there's that, there's the way lecturers interact, there's uh, half the time lecturers tell you your English is not good enough yeah. because yeah. sometimes they tell, they, that happens. Yeah. Okay? Comments that are made that make you feel this is not your mm -hmm. place. So, so those kind of things, mm -hmm. even though we come, different races, 
different classes with the same academic results mm. means that when, when we get into class, we are not at the same level. Mm. It positions others better for success, mm. some yes. better for success than others. Mm. And so the anger, yes. the anger comes. Mm. Because a child, remember, children that, that go to university in this country, they are very privileged. They are mm. very smart, most of very smart students mm. at, at our university. Mm. They, most of them have spent all the 12 years of their lives being celebrated. Yeah as being smart, as being... Some of them have been, their faces have been splashed over all over newspapers. Now mm. they come into the space. Not only are, not, are they not, mm. they are regarded as stupid, mm. not prepared, da, da, da. Mm. You know, so, so there's something that happens. It brings anger, it brings... And, and, and so it, 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 it gets... And, and, and then you get, a lot of them share, they mm. see this, and it's not. And, and they can see who succeeds, who yeah. gets what. And what do they not get? They can critique. And I say to colleagues, part of what enables them to critique what's going on mm. is because our education is that good. Yeah. They get into the sociology class and the politics class. <laughs> and yes. Yes. yes! And they see these things, they use the very theories you teach them <laughs> to critique this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And they give it back to you. Yeah. And, and they say, no, this, this is not it. Mm. But it gets mixed with the anger. Yeah. And they're saying, they've come to a stage where they're saying, up to here and no more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and sometimes instead of engaging, we say, no, just shut up and listen, you're a kid. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so th there's, a, there's not only anger at the moment, we're dealing with impatience. Yeah. We're dealing with anger and impatience. And as a black African woman, mm -hmm. uh, Nikiwe, mm -hmm. I understand the anger. Mm -hmm. Come on, I'm, mm -hmm. I've got that too. Yeah. You, you go around, someone has got to trip you at the garage, mm. make a comment about the car you're driving or whatever, that's a little racial, a mm. little demeaning, because they don't know who you are, they just see a small little black woman. Mm. <laughs> and it brings all of that. Yeah. You see these kids, and, or, or, or even in a, in a place mm -hmm. of work, yeah. you know, those things happen. And so you, 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 in a way I can understand, with, mm -hmm. and I always say to them, I cannot say stop being angry. Yeah. I can say to you, how do you use your anger? Yeah. Yeah. How do you use your anger? Let's, I say to them, let's talk about how you use the anger because mm. your anger is legit. Yeah. But let's use it productively mm. and, and, and make sure that it benefits us mm. and it positions us better yeah. because we only have a limited time. Mm. So, so there's, there's big transformation is not negotiable. Yeah. Yeah. It's not negotiable. The fact that we haven't been able to achieve what we have achieved. I mean, we've got more black students. When I say that, some of my colleagues say, but we've got more, our campuses are, are blacker than before. Mm. Of course, they're mm. black, blacker than uh, 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, 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 but but, but the other things that haven't changed. So, yes. so you've just changed the complexion, mm. but everything else has remained the same. Mm. So you're still saying uh, black African students must assimilate mm. and be like the culture, that's the only way that this place can work for them. Mm. Um, uh, the academic staff hasn't changed much. They look at who's professor, who is not. And that says, says that something to them. Sure. If, if they can say, in this university, you only have 11, 11 black African South African professors. Mm. In, in a university, they, they wonder what, what's, what's our hope, mm -hmm. okay? You can even locate them and you say, well, in the Faculty of Humanities, you only have two. <laughs> and you can point them by yeah. name. Mm -hmm. 
it's humanities. People think humanities is a thing for black Africans, and it's not. You know, you've got two <laughs> black African professors. What's going on? So we've got to. So, so what I'm saying is that we we've got to sit back and say, there's things that we could have done that we haven't done. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, the situation right now is saying to us, we've got to be humble enough and and, and own up to the fact that we haven't done that, uh -huh. and get down to work. Fantastic. I love that. Great note to end on. And get down to work because. We're on the same boat now. We've got to make this country work for us. Absolutely. Your insights have been absolutely fascinating. Let us now open it up. Any questions from our, uh, use the word loosely, studio guests who would like to put a question to my, to my wonderful guests here? Um, there is a microphone. Gary's got it to the right-hand side of the room. There we go. Okay. If you could just please introduce yourself and, and be specific about to whom you're posing your question, or if it's to both, please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon or oh, good evening. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, sorry, I'm nervous. Eh? Mm. Uh, okay, my name is Luando. Mm -hmm. I'm a junior accountant at Roynet Limited. Uh, I'm addressing my question to the lady, mm -hmm. or the gentleman can also add if he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to be honest as much as I can. We are running a project called the Vuga Sizwe. As you've spoken about choice, we've realized that in our academic years, we didn't have choice. I think I chose to be an accountant because I could qualify to be an accountant, mm -hmm. given my APS and everything and all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've maneuvered my way through, but it's not fulfilling because I really don't know what I wanted. Yeah. So we've decided to encourage learners. On the 9th of September, we have a trip to Saibono yeah. in Newtown. But here's my problem. I would like to know whether you've also experienced that thing, or if you have, what advice can you give? Mm -hmm. uh, you open up your heart and say you want to help someone but they are not receiving the help. They are not um, participating in what you do. You can send out an invitation and so have you ever experienced that? And if you have, how did you manage to overcome it? Okay, thank you so much. We'll take another question before we give our speakers a chance to respond. Is there another question? Nothing? I can't see the light. All right, Could you please go ahead. Yeah, choice. I mean, up, up, what you've discovered is really the, the problem. I, mean, I, I ask many students, why are you doing the degree that you're doing? Mm -hmm. Many of them can't tell you. It's mm -hmm. because they qualified, it's because it was the only thing, because they, sometimes it's because they think they're gonna make more money. And some of them discover whilst at university, second year, that they actually don't like it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, poverty locks you in you can't have a choice of changing. They have to stick it out until they complete. So that's a genuine problem. Help, I've, I've come to a stage to, to you know, we, we construct help in the way that we, we want. Okay, so, so some people help by giving funding, some people help by exposing children, for example, to things like Saibono, to other careers. Um, uh, some people help by engaging with learners not only academically, but also socially, because there's a whole lot of things that influence them. 
Okay, so I, I went on a hike with a group of students from, from uh, townships in Cape Town three weeks ago uh, with a group of women who are working with these kids to get them, whilst they're at high school, to get them to go to university. These are kids who will be first-generation university students. Some of them are at varsity, they're the only one, nobody has been to varsity school, but it's, it's targeted at first generation. And the idea of going on hikes with people like myself is to engage with them socially and academically. So they come, they pitch, because they want the hike, okay? But with the hike comes a whole lot of things. And, and it's interesting how it works, because with the hike, after the hike, we, we chill. I mean, the hike, we do a lot of things as we talk about a lot of things as we walk about their social life, how they make choices, um, uh, relationships, subjects, how you study for maths. Um, and then we, we have lunch together before we disperse, and during that time we talk. Um, and they can bring their problems, whether it's a maths problem, whether it's a career problem, but they're meeting somebody, some, not just me, but there's other people who have done different careers, and we can tell them what those things involve. And, and, and that sort of, there's, so there's an attraction, because mm. young people of today want a lot of other things. Just mm. doing one thing, um, uh, it's, it's not going to help. The, we're competing with a whole lot of things, by the mm. way. We're competing with a whole lot of things on social media. Caspar mm. Novest is selling them something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, you know that. Caspar yeah. Novest, I mean, I thought, Rihanna, Caspar Novest are my competition. Mm. Their, their constituency is mm. the same constituency that I want to influence. Mm. And I often ask myself, why would a student choose me over Rihanna or Caspar Novest? Mm. Why? I've got to make it appealing. I can't be precious and say, well, mine is education. They've got mm. to, they better get it and they better follow me. They don't. They're not at that level where they realize Kespanovas is making a lot of money. They want to drive the car. That, so we've got to be creative and more open-minded as well about how do we do this. And I, and I ask young people who also try to do this and say to them, why should they believe you? You're an accountant. But why should they believe you? What else? What, what is it? that why, why should they? So I think about that even though I'm a professor when I talk to young people. Why should they believe me? Why do I think I'm believable? What makes me believable? What, you know, because it's not just my education and my professorship. Some of them don't even care. They, some of them at that hiking group, there were two from UCT who didn't even know who I was, who were not even jumping up and down. They're not on social media. They don't care. Okay, so you think I'm going to pop up. They go, you DVC. Those who know, jump up and down. They form a queue to talk to me. These ones. Part of what makes them not even know who I am is the disadvantage of, of coming from a low socioeconomic background. Because mm. you actually don't have the social capital mm. to know who are the people to know mm. in this space. Mm. Children from middle class, upper middle, they know who to know. They mm. look, they get you from <laughs> afar, they chase you. Poor students don't even know how to do that. I greet them, they look at me like, oh, you're <laughs> Deputy Vice Chancellor. <laughs> That's what they did, because they don't know. Ah, you think they would go, yes. They don't even know what's deputy vice chancellor, and they don't care. Mm -hmm. and you see, so they wouldn't come because of that. But they, they are happy to walk with me. Because I'm get up, and I'm saying to them, I'm going to get there in an hour. Are you in? Mm -hmm. So I'm competing with them on the, on the hike. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, now that gets me to hang around me and then I can tell, tell them what is this thing that I'm doing and how can they get, you know. So I think you could, it, it helps to be a little creative because mm. they're not impressed by things that we know should be impressing them yeah. that yeah. don't impress them. Exactly. Things that resonate. And I don't know if you wanted to give that a stab, but <laughs> if you want. <laughs> um, I, I think that's important to remember that the purpose of life is to give. So whilst you're trying to to entice people to come, you might feel disappointed if they don't. You might feel frustrated sometimes, particularly in business when you're giving and you're trying to help people, they might betray you. So, so it's, mm. I, I think what happens then is you put your hand out and you get your hand slapped mm. and then you pull it back in and, and you become a little skeptical and a little cynical about things and you're a bit afraid to put your hand out again because now you think you're going to get it slept one more time and I think the only advice I can give to people is keep putting your hand out regardless of what happens. Yeah. Just, just put it there because the purpose of life is to give, not to take. So you have to keep doing that. It will be hard, you will be disappointed, you will sometimes feel betrayed. But if you you know if you pull your hand back and you become cynical and skeptical then you're just not going to be able to achieve anything. You're going to, you, you know, I think you're just going to die sad and lonely. Mm -hmm. Okay. True. Very true. To my wonderful guests, thank you so much for your time, for your invaluable insights. I'm certain that all of us in this room and those who have been watching online and it's being streamed on Facebook, I believe, that they've all learned a great deal from you. Thank you once again. Please give them Thank a warm you. round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. I will now hand it back to Chris from Nashville. Thank you. Great. Thank, Thank you very much, Nikiwe, for the inspirational interview and uh, Professor Pukeng and uh, Mr. Ian Firth for so much for the, the words of wisdom and the inspiration. I've certainly taken a lot out mm. of this and I'm sure so has the audience. Mm. So I just want to thank you all from our side for joining us tonight and for the audience for coming through tonight. And please join us for a drink on your way home. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Visit thesolutionslab.co.za to listen to more real South African success stories. Brought to you by Nashua. Saving you time, saving you money, putting you first.